Gotta go to this question of character to determine just who exactly is chiseling in on my fix. And that's how we know that it's Bernie Birnbaum, the sh I kid. Because ethically, he's kind of shaky. So you want to kill him? For starters. Welcome to the Hollywood and Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 146 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. This week we're talking with director Michael Pack. He's an industry veteran whose latest documentary demands your attention. It's called Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. Enough said, right? But that's just the start of the story. Stay tuned. You know, I'm beginning to think we're reaching a celebrity tipping point, and it couldn't come at a better time. It officially started with Ricky Gervais's mocking Hollywood hypocrites at the Golden Globes. That monologue left a sizable mark, even if it didn't impact the industry. Celebrities keep on pontificating at those award shows. Nothing's stopping there. But it's not just that. I, you know, I've been watching Hollywood for quite some time, and I just get the sense that something's brewing in the culture beyond Hollywood. And it could impact how the stars and celebrities try to make us change our minds about the presidential campaign. Really? Ready for it? I think Hollywood activism is jumping the shark as we speak. Now listen, I'm a right-of-center guy, and you could accuse me of wishful thinking here. I disagree with most Hollywood messaging, so I hope or wish or crave or want it to suffer a pretty big body blow. Sure, I get that, but hear me out. Remember when Joaquin Phoenix told his fellow stars of the Golden Globes to stop taking so many private jets so they could better battle climate change? You think that didn't linger in their minds? And ours? What about on social media when they mocked the Joker star for daring to wear the same tuxedo throughout Oscar season? So brave, so earth-saving, right? Well, now the newest fad in La La Land is serving plant-based meals at award shows. To save the planet, folks. To save the planet. It's all ridiculous. These micro-virtue signals do nothing, or next to nothing, to be generous. I should know. I recently went to the Critics' Choice Awards earlier this month and sat and waited for my personal plant-based meal to reach my table. And it never came. I went back to my hotel, went to the Carl's Jr., which was about two blocks away, and scarfed down some meat. Now, that's just me. But think about the silliness of plant-based meals at these award shows. How are the stores getting to these events? How big are their entourages? How massive are their carbon footprints behind these events, behind the stars, and behind those very same entourages? Are they switching to plant-based meals in their private lives, or is it just like a one-night thing? Because if it's a one-night thing, it means, like I said, nothing. How much you want to bet many of those stars have steaks or burgers or chicken waiting for them back at home after the show ends? It's all absurd. And with social media so 
absolutely boisterous and muscular, plus the rise of right-friendly podcasts, websites, and YouTube channels with massive audiences, well, they're having a field day with all this. I know I am. Here's the thing. You just can't hide the hypocrisy any longer. And it could render Hollywood's messaging machine either neutered or obsolete during the Trump re-election campaign. We'll have to wait and see. Maybe we'll have to kind of come back to this podcast around November, see how things worked out. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwans.com backslash yum for details. And now here's the hit tweet of the week. This week's winner is Andy Richter. Conan O'Brien's far-left sidekick is pretty political on Twitter, and his latest message shows that the Hollywood resistance doesn't mess around. Listen and be afraid. Here we go. If John Bolton doesn't testify, please don't buy his bleeping book. Steal it. That's brave. It's bold. I think we need a new word for it. How about brave bold? You're listening to my daddy's podcast. He makes us go to bed early if we don't watch Avengers Infinity War with him. Again. This week's hit tip of the week is Mon 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 Monsters. It's a Taiwanese horror comedy. I love horror comedies. And I have to say, it's got some serious flaws. Way too long. The story kind of lags at times. But it's so novel and so potent. I had to recommend it. The story follows a bullied teen who reluctantly hangs out with his high school tormentors. They kind of see him as maybe their mascot, the guy they can kind of pick on, but maybe just kind of accept him gingerly into their circle. Now together, they meet up with this humanoid beast, who you see a lot of in the film, who tries and fails to devour them. Because that's what beasts do. So what do they do? Well, they capture it, tie it up, and they start to torture it for their own amusement. Now what? Now what indeed? Now, like I said, this film is longer than it needs to be. It's much meaner, too. Like I said, I watch a lot of horror movies. This is nasty stuff. It's also unflinching when it comes to our culture. Now, this is obviously an Asian culture, but I think they're kind of commenting on everyone in the Western world where we use our smartphones too much. We love those selfies. And it doesn't matter how much pain the people are being <laughs> inflicted upon. If I can get a selfie with them, it's all good. It's really horrible to watch, and not just the monster elements of the movie. These are really bad kids. It's also really original filmmaking. I, I just, you know, I see so many horror films, and when you have a movie like this where the beats don't feel familiar, where I can't predict where it's going next, I love that. It's really refreshing. And even some of the acting here, while a little bit over the top, it's chilling. Some of these teenagers, gosh, you just want to go in the, onto the screen and smack them. They have no souls whatsoever, and it kind of adds up to the the whole message of the film, which is pretty bleak in and of itself. Now, Mon 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 Monsters isn't available quite yet. It's hitting home video very soon, though, February 4th. So wait for it, check it out, or maybe stream it. You'll be thinking about it for quite some time, even if you don't absolutely love it. It's worth your while. 
Political Spirits, the weekly conservative podcast that says the left and right should have a few drinks and talk. The only podcast that intersperses commentary with the sound of pouring alcohol. Host Franklin Rye, an experienced governmental affairs professional, offers analysis, commentary, and conservative solutions mixed in with amusing anecdotes about the sausage-making process. Ever wonder how democracy is like a Chevy Suburban? Did the Beatles really write conservative songs? How a Democrat politician is like the Archelians in Men in Black? Add to that occasional historical episodes with a patriotic bent, kept at 30 minutes or less, perfect for a commute, and you have a podcast recipe to serve conservatives, political news and opinion junkies, and those who just wonder how on earth we reached the point where so many in our country think patriotism is a dirty word. Please join us at Political Spirits. That's politicalspirits.libsyn.com or on Twitter at Franklin Rye. Director Michael Pack may lean to the right professionally, but his films regularly appear on left-leaning PBS stations nationwide. It means he's a pretty good storyteller. He's someone who's able to work within the industry while sharing the tales that he's eager to tell that maybe other people aren't. His latest, though, it's a doozy. Created equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. Now, the notoriously private Supreme Court justice opens up big time, revealing both key biographical details of his life and also why he adores the Constitution so much, how he came to different conclusions in his life. It's really fascinating to watch. It's not just, I prefer this and I want to lean towards that. It's, hey, this is what I went through in my life. This is how it informed me. This is why I changed my mind on certain issues. It's really fascinating. And I think even people who disagree with him will come away thinking, well, I get where he's coming from. And that's really important. That's a good storyteller at work. And it's also, Clarence Thomas is a fine storyteller. It's one of the nicest surprises of the film. Now, Created Equal comes out January 31st in select theaters. You can go to justicethomasmovie.com to see the whole list of theaters that's playing at come January 31st. Now, if it does well, it may expand. So kind of keep your eyes on that website. Keep checking with it every few days. And of course, if it's near you, go see the film. Not just because it's a good story, not because it's an important one, but you want to support right of center art where you don't get much of it. Now, Pack is uh, pretty shrewd in letting Thomas himself tell his own story. He could have gone in different directions, made it more of a traditional de- uh, documentary story, but he I guess he realized somewhere along the way that, hey, I don't need to do much of anything. I can kind of gently craft it, but let Thomas weave the narrative. Smart move. Now, Pack talks about the, his decisions behind the movie and also why so few conservative-leaning filmmakers are making movies like this. I hope you enjoy my chat with filmmaker Michael Pack. Well, welcome to the show, Michael. I guess my first question is a pretty basic one and a short one. It's the old why. Why make a documentary about Clarence Thomas? I I just, I I want to dig in, but I'm kind of curious where it all began for you. Well, um, I met Clarence. Clarence Thomas and I had some mutual friends. I had I heard a a rumor that he was interested in maybe getting his whole story out. He had been tired of being defined by his enemies uh, and untruths being said. And I met with him. And after some initial meetings, I felt it was just a very important story that needed to be told. It couldn't be more timely. It's gotten more timely as we've worked on the film, in fact, with the, with the issues that relate to the film coming up again and again, from race to the sort of Me Too questions to 
questions of uh, how should the, what should the Supreme Court be like. And, you know, when you think about Justice Thomas, as you said, he was he's always been quiet. He's always been reticent. He's always been to himself. And the, it's it's almost shocking to watch the movie because after all these years of being quiet, he, he's so he's so interesting. He's so engaging. He's so willing to be vulnerable in a way. Uh, do you get that? Was there is there a sense that there was something that happened where he said, I can't stay silent anymore? Or was it sort of maybe sort of an evolution where he'd finally decided to speak up? I think it was the accumulation of things over years. I mean, you some of the attacks on him are detailed in the film itself. And But HBO was coming out with a film when we first started talking to him called Confirmation that was really the Anita Hill side of the story mm-hmm. with Kerry Washington playing Anita Hill. Um, and there was just more and more coming out. And I, I think everyone felt that it was long past time for him to tell his story. And you're right. A lot of people who don't know Justice Thomas think of him as quiet and taciturn. And but the truth is, as you just said, very much the opposite. He's a great voice. He's a great storyteller. He has a huge, famous uh, laugh that's like a peal of thunder. And um, so, in fact, although I originally planned a traditional documentary where I'd interview a wide variety of people on all sides of questions, I felt after talking to him that Justice Thomas is was it was the best person to tell his story and that what the film should be would be his side of the story his way not multiple points of view but the way he sees things and so i conducted over 30 hours of interviews with justice thomas and of and his wife and only with them and the film is really built on those very long inter that very long interview uh, plus archival footage and recreations and, and other material but but it stills but that's really its bedrock, and, and he is, in fact, a great storyteller. Gotcha. When you think about the film, and, and when I started watching it, I thought, okay, there's going to be judicial philosophy, big-picture arguments, <laughs> and they're all in there. But there's so much about Clarence Thomas, the father, the husband, the grandson, the man. I, talk about that approach, because I, I didn't expect so much of it for it to be so rich, and I, I thought the focus would... would would jump in more quickly, but obviously there's a method to your madness. Talk about why you kind of trace that line as opposed to maybe a more, a more red meat uh, approach. Well, first of all, I think people really appreciate stories rather than being lectured to. And Justice Thomas happens to have a great story. You can be a great and important person and not have a great personal story, but Justice Thomas has one. And his views and his sense of the world are very much shaped by it. So in telling the story, viewers get a sense of what he thinks and what he believes. You know, as you say, he, he, he comes from dire poverty. He was born in Pinpoint, Georgia, uh, a little community on the coast of Georgia outside Savannah. It's a Gullah Geechee community. Where, so he grew up not even having English as his first language, but the Geechee dialect being his first language. He, his mother was very poor. She worked in a crab factory. His father left before he could even remember, so he was really raised by his mother. And then when he was about six, his mother took him and his brother to Savannah, where she worked as a maid. And there he experienced real poverty. As he said, he exchanged um, rural uh, poverty for urban squalor. I mean, there they didn't have enough to eat. They were cold in the winter. His mother would bring him to school, but he would just leave school and wander the streets by himself. 
So that went on for two years. And then his mother, who felt she could not just could see that she couldn't raise them, took Clarence Thomas and his brother to her father, his grandfather, to raise. And that is what turned Justice Thomas's life around. His grandfather had a small heating oil business and so had more money than, than Clarence Thomas's mother, was able to give him hard work, discipline, a, a regular household, a male authority figure, and then sent him to a Catholic, Catholic schools, parochial schools, and the nuns there gave him discipline and hard work. But remember, this is also the segregated South. So those were segregated schools run by Irish nuns. So Clarence Thomas thrived in that new environment, and, and, and in fact, he so thrived in Catholic school that he decided he wanted to become a priest. And he entered these, seminar, these seminaries, which had been all white, and he was one of the first African-Americans in them. And had he been a priest, he would have been one of the first African-American priests in Savannah. And he, he did well there, too. But then he, he experienced ra racism, and it was the late 60s, in one notorious incident when he was watching TV with seminarians and Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. One of them said, I hope that son of a bitch dies. And that kind of attitude turned Justice Thomas on the church, which he didn't think was doing enough for civil rights anyway, and he sort of flipped. He rejected the church, he rejected his grandfather, told his grandfather he didn't want to be a priest. His grandfather kicked him out of the, his house, the only home he had known, as he said, and then he, then he was sort of floundering, and he had to go wherever he could, and he, he happened to have a full scholarship at Holy Cross in Worcester, and he went there, but there he... But he had been radicalized. He, as he said, he began to feel that race and racism explained everything. He was a, sort of an angry black man, angry at everything. And there at Holy Cross, he helped form the Black Student Union. They, he was part of a group in, that invited the Panthers to come to campus and speak. He engaged in a student walkout. All the, all the sort of qualities of left-wing activism in the late 60s. And then, then the next phase of his very complicated life was a falling away from those values. He, he began to see that those approaches failed and did not work. And he finally came back to his grandfather's values, what he, what, what he thought of his grandfather's values and the nun's values. And re, he had sort of fallen away from religion but came back to that as well. And, and it was through seeing the failure of liberal programs, some of which he himself was part of, like affirmative action, but like busing in nearby Boston. And so finally he, you know, got to the point where he voted for Ronald Reagan in nineteen eighty and, and went to work in the Reagan administration. And by then he had become a conservative and he was out in public and he was then attacked by the civil rights establishment, who felt his views are what we would now call politically incorrect. Yeah. And those attacks went on up through the confirmation battle. And that confirmation battle, it's really stunning to watch. It's it's a the more things change kind of a moment, at least for this viewer, and how the attacks were just overwhelming and unfair and the kind of attacks you would never see leveled against a left of center person of any kind of color, let alone black. Uh, is, there's a real, I think there's a real educational opportunity. I, I don't mean it in the dry way, but it's, I think sometimes when you look at the past, it's instructive of the present. Can you talk about sort of that aspect of it? Because I found it fascinating. Well, on one hand, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings were very much a replay of the Thomas hearings. I mean, I think it was eerie for everybody who was involved in 1991 in Clarence Thomas's confirmation battle. I mean, the, the attacks on Kavanaugh followed very much the pattern of the attacks on Thomas, even to the point 
uh, waiting very late for the for Christine Blasey Ford's accusations to come out. And Clarence Thomas's case, the Senate Judiciary Committee had already voted and and, and sent his nomination forward when the Anita Hill allegation was leaked and the Senate Judiciary Committee had to reconvene but could not vote again because they had already voted. But, but I think your deeper point, Christian, is, is right. I mean, he's been attacked in ways that you really couldn't be attacked, even with racist stereotypes and tropes, you know, where you see cartoons with Cl- Clarence Thomas in a Ku Klux Klan outfit, or even in the 80s, even before confirmation, Hodding Carter, a Southern journalist, called Clarence Thomas a chicken-eating preacher looking for crumbs from the white man's table. I mean, it's you could not say that about Beyond somebody. With the other, with different political views, it's it's amazing to watch. One of the comments that Justice Thomas said, which I, I think will be incendiary in some circles, but it's sort of in, instructive in a way. He said modern day liberals, in a way, are more of an impediment to him than kind of your stereotypical redneck bigot in a pickup truck. I, I'm I'm paraphrasing a bit, but I was kind of curious your reaction to that because I think that's could be as politically incorrect as anything you could say today. Well, that's right. He he says that he was raised to fear the, you know, the racist stereotype of the Ku Klux Klansmen, and and as he says, they were a threat. I mean, in in Clarence Thomas's or cl- lifetime, there were still, or at least close, there were lynchings in, nearby in Savannah, but in Clarence, but for him, for Clarence Thomas, he. He, his grandfather in their world, they simply just kept away from those people. And the, he didn't really experience people who he feels didn't give, didn't deny his full humanity until he kind of dealt with liberals, starting with the opposition to him during the Reagan years, but culminating really in the Senate. And he felt that very strongly looking at the liberal senators on the judiciary panel that were um, responsible for um conducting that hearing and and i think that he is right i mean he feels his views were diminished demeaned not just during the hearing but in the years since and so the, so for him the threat has come from modern day liberals not the the people he was feared to to distrust he he sometimes makes it he quotes his grandfather who is a big influence on his life on the difference between rattlesnakes and um cottonmouths and you know, rattlesnake. Um, one of them, I guess, is the rattlesnake. I don't know, I'm a rattlesnake expert. Will will just attack you out front, more like the Klansmen. And then there are these sneaky ones that are kind of weighed and you know trying to lure you in and then attack you. And for Clarence Thomas, that's the way that liberals worked. Yeah. When when you think about interviewing Justice Thomas, did you get the sense that as the interviews progressed, he was leaning more into the process, or maybe he was investing in it more and more as it went on or any any other sort of thoughts about how he engaged with you as a storyteller he was very very engaged from the beginning i mean we originally scheduled the interviews in three hour blocks which is a long time for most people but justice thomas wanted to do them in four hour blocks which is an incredible amount of time his wife by contrast wanted to do them in two hour blocks which is way more standard Uh he's very engaged and very emotional. I think you could see, Christian, when you were watching the film. And um, I really feel that he had to relive lots of things, painful as well as celebratory things. And I think the interview process was difficult for him. And as you'd expect, the difficulty peaked 
in the confirmation battle, you know, especially the Anita Hill part. And I am honored that Justice Thomas trusted me to tell the story and that he chose to be so open and frank with me. You're a veteran filmmaker, and you seem to get the fact that narrative and storytelling is so crucial to kind of to making an argument, to kind of convincing people. I was kind of curious, if you were a younger man making this movie, would you approach it the same way? Or maybe, maybe the fact that you've got a lot of sort of other projects under your belt made you tackle this in the way you did? Well, I don't know. I do see younger conservative writer center filmmakers more anxious to make ideologically charged documentaries, advocacy documentaries. And that has really rarely been my style. I prefer to tell a story. So this one, I hope that people who don't agree with Clarence Thomas can go and get something from it. I think of this film in some ways as parallel or opposite to RBG. You know, I went to see RBG, even though I disagree with her jurisprudence, and I thought it was valuable to learn something about her, her, her background and how she thinks. And I hope the people who don't agree with Justice Thomas can do that here without actually having their values under assault, the way it would be in a more advocacy piece. I agree with the, your premise, Christian, that it's storytelling that is what people want to hear that is way more important. And maybe younger filmmakers, there are very few younger filmmakers on the conservative side, maybe they are reluctant to do that. Although I will say um, my colleagues on the other side, left-wing filmmakers, liberal filmmakers, I, I actually think documentary storytelling has reached a peak at the moment and is, you know, the skill level is very high. I, you know, and I, I think that Michael Moore, for all his flaws, actually put the focus, no pun intended, on documentaries in a way that hasn't been done before. I, I was kind of curious, you, you know, there's a movie coming out very soon from Hulu about Hillary Clinton, and I've read some of the press clippings around that and, and the way it's being framed. I expect your film will have a very different reaction from the film critic community. Any thoughts on that and, and what that's maybe is there, is there something to be gleaned from that? Well, I, I think that, I mean, I, I, look, I hope for a fair shot from the, from film and movie reviewers. Um, it's true that, you know, their biases are pro Hillary and anti Justice Thomas, and that is no secret. So I have to ask them to transcend their biases. And if you make a pro Hillary film, all you have to have is them go along with their biases. But I have, you know, so far the film has gotten a lot of very good press. There was a, a nice piece in the Washington Post about it. We had a nice piece in Time Magazine and ABC News. So I'm optimistic, but but you're right. It's something of an uphill battle. But, but uh, maybe more importantly, I am hoping that um, your listeners and, and people who may be more sympathetic to Justice Thomas go and buy tickets. People on the left do a very good job of getting their people out to do that. RBG is a very good case in point. They made $20 million in the box office. They were a big hit, Oscar-nominated. The people who cared about it went to the theater and bought tickets. So I hope your listeners go to the theater and buy tickets, too. The film is is going to be in limited release January 31st. So to tell if it's in your city, you have to go to our website, justicethomasmovie.com. But if it's not in your city and you have a group that want to see it, we can set up a, a, a one-time screening. And there's a ways to do that on the website. And we hope if it's in theaters long enough, it'll break out to more and more theaters. So you got to support the film, and the first stop is to, is the website, justicethomasmovie.com. Well, you're, you're singing or preaching to my choir. I say that all the time. If you want to support projects like this, you can't just sort of send out a tweet. you got to be there, buy the ticket, go to it, 
tell a friend. I think you've already given a tip or two indirectly to maybe a new generation of right-of-center filmmakers on how to make movies like this. Do you have any other sort of bits of wisdom? You know, it must be daunting. You know, you're an established name and, and talent, so you can kind of point to that as your resume. But for young filmmakers who don't have that, they don't have that luxury, it may be pretty hard to crack the narrative, the sort of the documentary space. Any sort of advice you can give to people who maybe want to kind of follow in that path? Well, I hope that the more people do. Um, I had I wrote an op-ed a few years ago that was in the Federalist on why there are so few conservative documentary filmmakers, and to my mind, it really starts in film school. I mean, there are thousands of film schools around the country. Almost every film school professor is left-wing, some very left-wing. In my own town, Washington, D.C., AU has an environmental film department, a social media department. And those, you know, they have one approach to environmental film and one approach to social media and, and issues of poverty. So the thousands and thousands of students that are graduated from these programs, you know, each year, only a few percent of, like always, have talent. And there's a winnowing process. But there is no winnowing process on the right. So that's already a problem at the at the beginning of the chain. And then there are problems all along, funding sources, distribution sources, film festivals that are really have a, a, a left-leaning bias, most of them um, explicitly, consciously so. And it, and it is their right. You know, America is, was built on everyone's right to have their point of view and get their ideas across. But the left has done a very good job in trying very hard to do that. And working at it and showing up and building the institutions and supporting their filmmakers. So I think it's a complicated process. You know, I think we need to have more institutions to give these young filmmakers that might be more conservative, more libertarian, more support. Mm. Uh, Just as I reach across the aisle moment, are there any documentary filmmakers who may be left of center that you really enjoy their work? I think they're... Their opinions are valuable or their their technique is really uh, noteworthy? I, well, um, I'm friendly with Alex Gibney. I've known him many, many years. I think he is the premier left-leaning filmmaker in America, way better, in my opinion, than Michael Moore, although I don't want to get hate mail from Michael Moore. Michael Moore has a lot of talent, too. I think Alex's films are a high level of craft. I don't always disagree, or I usually disagree with them, sometimes, but not always. And I think most of my friends on the left, I'm friendly with Barrett Goodman, and he has a company, Arc Media, that also does great work. Um, it, it's, it's also, Barack, unlike Alex, does a lot of his work for PBS, and I myself have gotten almost all my films on PBS, and I believe other conservative documentarians could get their work on PBS as well. I think it's a mistake for them to write that off. It's millions of people. Yeah. Conversely, is there a right-of-center filmmaker that maybe hasn't broken through yet, but you've gotten to know his or her work, and you could talk about just real briefly, just to name-check them and so people can kind of find out more about them? I don't have anybody I can really recommend, I am sad to say. I mean, when I began, I started my company, Manifold Productions, in 1977, and I certainly thought within 10 years, during the Reagan years, there would be an explosion of talent, creative talent, in documentaries and also in feature films, another interest of mine, but there, but there hasn't been. I mean, I try to analyze it in my article in The Federalist, but it's there are a lot of causes and many people talk about it. And I think it's an unfortunate situation. 
Um, and I, I, I hope still for another generation of talented young people. And I try to help the ones that I can. But there is nobody that, that leaps to mind, I'm sad to say. I mean, I have, a, I have friend, young friends who are trying in that area, but I don't think they're, I think they're all a long way from, say, Alex Gibney's level of craft. Yeah, and I think the good thing is that they have the internet, YouTube, they can kind of work it out. But uh, yeah, going from that point to where you are and your colleagues it, it is difficult. One last question. I don't know how much you can talk about this, but I was looking, I think it was might have been IMDb, a new project of yours, the last 600 meters. Can you can you share more about yes. that, or at least tease it, so we can get a look forward to it? Yes, thank you very much, Christian. This is a film we've already completed, um, and it's about the two biggest battles in the war in Iraq, Fallujah and Najaf. There are actually two battles of Fallujah. We try to tell the story in a non-political way, more storytelling, uh, from the point of view of the soldiers, and it's, it's, it's as if it were a story about Gettysburg or Iwo Jima. What happened at the battle? Not just from the grunt point of view, but from all levels of the battle. So people can understand. The, the, you know, we ask our young men and women to go fight for us, and, and we should at least try to understand their deeds. And that's sort of what they ask for. And I think it celebrates their heroism. It doesn't glamorize it. These are ugly, awful battles. But it tells the story straight. James Mattis, for, for instance, praised it. I think he called it one of the best films about war that really makes clear what that tip of the spear, the last 600 meters, is like. And we've had praise from many, many sources, but we are still looking to get it released. We'd like to follow with a theatrical release like we have had with the Justice Thomas movie. And I think that's another very powerful film and, and very appropriate for this time when we're still enmeshed in wars in the Middle East and elsewhere. Yeah, well, hopefully I can uh, have you back on the HitCast and we can talk about that project when it's finally out. But, uh, Michael, thank you so much for talking about Created Equal to Clarence, Clarence Thomas in his own words. Again, it's out January 31st as a limited theatrical release. Go support the movie. If you think you know Justice Thomas, you don't quite know him because he really does open up in ways that will surprise you and uh, will kind of confirm everything you've thought about him and more so as an intellectual giant. And is a really, gosh, it, it just struck me as a decent, kind, patient mm. human being who put up with so much. And there's a stoicism about that approach that I find so admirable that is so so difficult to replicate, but I'm glad he's here and I'm glad he's on the Supreme Court. But uh, again, the the uh, website is justicethomasmovie.com and you'll find all the information you'll need about theatrical screenings, how to contact the right folks. Everything you need is right there. So, Michael, thank you so much. And again, I want to talk, I want to talk with you down the road. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you, Christian. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. Let's make Vision Zero a reality in D.C., Almost half of DC's traffic fatalities come from impaired driving. These deaths are 100% preventable. 
Don't let impaired driving ruin your holiday. Always have a plan for a sober ride. Never drive impaired. DC police are arresting drunk and drugged drivers. Drive sober or get pulled over. A message from the District Department of Transportation and Metropolitan Police Department.